We're going to eventually be in First Peter, the uh, first chapter. Uh, but as we, before we do that, we're going to get into a little bit about uh, Christian hope and how we, how we look at that. Uh, so you can get your Bibles open if you want to First Peter, but we'll have uh, a little bit of background because we just sang uh, all our hope is in you. Uh, talking about that. So, you know, the first question we ask in this series, well, what is hope? Um, in Hebrews 6, we're told that as we desire each one of you to show the same eagerness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So the writers of Hebrews are saying this is something important, you know. So when we say all our hope is in you, what are we exactly saying? Uh, are we saying, man, I sure hope this works out? You know, that's kind of the way we do it, as if it's wishing uh, or uncertain, but boy, this is about the best we got. You know, that's that's not what we're saying, obviously, and we've talked about that uh, the last few weeks, the idea of hope being full assurance in God's promises. Um, the promise of being with us, the promise of, of uh, uh, never forsaking us, the promise of delivering us from evil, the promise of eternal life, all those promises that were given. Uh, so even though this sermon series is about hope. It's really more about God's promises. What can we count on? Uh, because I think sometimes our faith gets attacked, maybe, in one way, and just watered down in some ways because we end up hoping for promises uh, that aren't given um, or not hoping in the ones that are. And so either one of those can cause us problems. Uh, so when you look at Psalm 42, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? The Psalms are always so good to just tell you how like it is. How do I feel? Um, I will put my hope in God. I will praise Him again, my Savior and my God. And again, it's that same word uh, in Hebrew that we have in Greek, the idea uh, that hope not meaning, you know, cross your fingers, you know. It doesn't mean God might work for your salvation. It means that He be confident that he has and that he is. Uh, that's the thing that we can, it, it's essentially part of faith, obviously, trusting that what he's told us is going to happen. Uh, you know, you think about it, and we talk about having a relationship with God and connection, and obviously it's a little different than relationship with uh, other people, but, you know, trust is a big deal, isn't it? Um, the people you trust are the ones you get the deepest conversations with. It's the ones you go to, the ones you go to when you're up or down, to tell you the truth. Um, uh, but even the best person in the world can disappoint us. Uh, uh, hopefully not often, <laughs> if it's somebody you trust, but God will never do that. God is faithful, as the Bible says. So that's what, get hope right, you know. It's not just wishing, it's not just thinking maybe probably, there's a probability that this will work out. But it's something every Christian should have. It's just this, Assurance is probably one of the best words in, in our, in our kind of scripture we're coming off of is what Peter tells us earlier, or excuse me, later, chapter 3. We're going to look at chapter 1 here in a minute. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. Uh, and if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. That's why we're doing a series on it. But hope for what? Well, hope in God's promises, confidence in his promises. So can you explain it? It's like, you know, we do this with evangelism, you know, go out and tell people about Jesus. It's like, you know, yeah, you can do that in different ways. Um, 
you know, just supporting those who do is one of the things. But this is this you can all do, right? Just be ready if someone asks. This is kind of reactive. I think we need to be proactive too. I'm not saying that, but but this you can do, right? If somebody at lunch or today asks you, well, why do you hope? What are you going to say? You know. And if you don't know, well, well let's figure it out. You know. Uh, it's going to be similar to other people, but everybody's connection to God is, is unique because we're all unique. So biblical hope is not uncertain desire. It is confident expectation. That's where we kind of have to put this down. And so what we've done in the last uh, couple weeks is kind of set that up. Uh, why do we hope? What reasons can we give? In the first week, we talked about because of grace, you know, because we don't have to... Uh, just look at our own work, you know, in Second Thessalonians. May, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. That's what we looked at. Comfort your hearts. Grace gives us comfort. And then in, in Colossians 1, we, we also looked at that, and, and I'll turn there quickly to read it, but because of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. You see in Colossians 1.21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That's that man part we were talking about with the kids. Um, there's a problem. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So that's the idea of being, having hope because of the good news of the gospel. The, the that grace creates the gospel, and this means this is by which and how we are saved by, by grace. That's what the gospel is. So for today, I thought, we haven't done this yet, so I thought this would be kind of fun. You know, you want to have fun, right? Everybody, I like having fun. Um, I don't know how much fun we're going to have, but hopefully it will be fun for you. But First Peter 1 is what we'll get to. But here's an analogy. I'm trying to figure out how does this work, and that the Bible gets into it, because you even get that in Acts 2 when... when uh, Peter preaches at Pentecost this wonderful sermon, and everybody's listening to him. He's probably in the temple. You know, you have some miracle things going on there. And they hear the gospel, you know. And in a nutshell, it's like, you guys are bad. God is good. And God has sent someone to take care of that. You know, it's, it's more detailed than that, but that's a summary. And he kind of sets down, you know. It looks like, I'm done. And the people say, well, what, what do we do? What, what, what do we what do we what do we do? What, how do we do this? And then he gives them information. It's kind of what we're going to look at in this analogy. Because if you think about an analogy of a heart surgeon that can save lives with the surgery, um, we do have that today. I mean, that happens. Uh, so the analogy is that grace is the doctor's willingness and eagerness to heal and, and, and ability. That's that's the grace. Whether you deserve the heart surgery is another question. But but the uh, the gospel. God saving the lost through Jesus' death and resurrection is the actual procedure. So you've got someone who can do the procedure and the procedure itself. That's, that's essentially grace in the gospel, which we've talked about the first two weeks. One thing's still missing, though, isn't it? The patient choosing to go through the actual surgery. You know, heart surgery doesn't happen by osmosis, as they say, where you just get near the doctor and it happens. Uh, and what this is called, and we'll see this in First Peter, is the new birth uh, in Christ. And this one gets kind of, it's sometimes hard for us to understand, although it's not as difficult as we make it. So the doctor's willing, the procedure will work, but the disease must actually be cut out. There's still a problem. Uh, 
and I don't know if this analogy works for you. I hope it does. If it doesn't, and then you can forget it after I'm done, but try to remember it at least while I'm talking because it makes me feel good. And one of the things that the church should do is make the pastor feel good, right? Isn't that? I think that I think that's in our mission statement, but uh, maybe not. But so the operation must take place to save the patient. It, it's extremely important. Uh, you can believe that the surgeon is eager. Uh, you can believe that the operation is effective, uh, and still die <laughs> because you actually haven't had it. <laughs> so there's one more thing, one thing you lack. Um, so to have a living hope, you have to undergo the surgery itself, which brings us to First Peter, uh, verse 3 uh, through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's a lot in there. We're not going to hit much of four and five because there's some rabbit trails and sometimes I follow the rabbit a little too far, so we're going to stay away from some of that. But what First Peter 3 does is connects grace, gospel, and hope, which is kind of what we're trying to do here, uh, and gives us kind of the reason, one of the main reasons we can hope. So you've got his great mercy, the grace, the doctor's willingness to heal. You've got the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Well, why is that in there? Is that the gospel? Um, it's not the gospel, but it's the vindication of the gospel. Kind of back to our analogy. I didn't think about that till now, so hopefully this works. How do we know the surgery works? It's already happened to somebody else. Something's happened to vindicate the surgery. It's been successful. Uh, the resurrection, we, did, we sang, you know, you know, that we, the second song we sang about Jesus' resurrection. We, we sometimes, I think, to a fault, kind of wait till Easter to talk about that. Um, I think we should talk about more than that. It's kind of important. Um, but what does the resurrection do? Um, if the gospel is God's action in Jesus to save us, the resurrection is proof that the gospel is real and can be trusted. Uh, and we get this from 1 Corinthians 15. So, this is a great chapter. I think I've got it sketched out, and I don't know when we'll do it, but I thought it'd be really cool <laughs> to do a sermon series on 1 Corinthians 15 because um, it's, 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 it's a wonderful chapter about it's, it's the resurrection chapter. But if you go to uh, verse 17 in there, um, you get this proof. Um, you know, the thing that's in it, we talked about this, I think, this, this Easter, that you know, one of the things we say, we sing that song about our faith and that we believe in the resurrection of the body, right? Um, not just the resurrection of the soul. Uh, we believe that Jesus was resurrected and then remember we go through all those words, you know, touch me and he ate and all. He, it was, he was physical afterwards. He didn't just get risen spiritually. Because, you know, somebody could ask, is there something that we could show you that would make you disbelieve in the gospel? Is it, is there anything that makes it, would fall down? And this is it. If you could find the bones of Jesus, then everything falls apart. And that's what Paul's kind of saying here. Uh, and they've been trying, and they haven't. Uh, I mean, if the resurrection really didn't happen, well, then we got some problems, don't we? And that's what he's saying here. If you go to, to verse 
17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's a strong statement, isn't it? Then those who have fallen asleep, which is the ancient first century Greek way of saying dead, uh, we use those terms, right? I mean, uh, I think in context, you know, somebody has died, we may say they've passed away or something along with this is fault. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The people who died and believed, pfft, doesn't matter. The resurrection didn't happen. There's, they're just zebra food, as they say. You know, the circle of life, you know. Sounds fun until you're toward the end of that. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you know, it, it sounds neat philosophically, but it doesn't do much for us. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all of people, of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised. He doesn't stop, obviously, with that. Has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So when we do, you know, God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection, we're actually talking about our resurrection there. Because of Jesus, you know, the resurrection of the dead, you know, second coming, all that kind of stuff. Um, so this is the key. What does the resurrection do? It's a vindication. This, because think about it. Jesus said he came and you had to follow him or you couldn't have access to the Father at all. Jesus said you had to, that he was going to die. And if you believed in that death and took the grace, that you would now be blameless before the Father and could be, have a connection with him. And he also said that he wasn't going to stay dead. If he gets two out of three, is that okay? If he really did stay dead and he got that wrong, can we really count on the other two? The resurrection is not quite important. That's why Easter is such a big deal. Uh, and I think this is what we're looking the hope, and you have it in here. If in Christ we have hope for this life only, we are to p be most pitied of all people. That, you know, this is, this is there. This is the thing. You know, I've heard people, there are a few Christian cults in our midst that talk about a spiritual resurrection. Well, I suppose that's possible. I mean, it was spiritual too, but that's easy to fake, isn't it? I mean... Someone dies, and we say, well, they're, they're still there, but they're spiritually resurrected. How do you prove that? It's kind of hard. It's kind of just one man's, one woman's word against another, right? But, you know, the Bible, as we say, bends over backwards with all these. We did that, oh, that was a couple years ago. We went through every resurrection appearance account. I think I came up with 12. <laughs> um, they saw him. They touched him. They put their hands in his side. They ate with him. He instructed them. All this kind of, he ascended. I mean, he was here. The Bible does not say, well, this is spiritual. It got spiritual overtones, certainly, but he's physical, and this is what we look at. So the hope of the resurrection, the resurrection is the vindication that the gospel, so the, that the, it's the vindication that surgical operation is really going to work. You can trust me. Because if you can only trust Jesus 80% of the time, does that really help? What if you had a small plane and 80% of the time it didn't crash? How many times are you going to go up in that plane? <laughs> if you can do it in sequence, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's the, that's the thing. Yeah, that, and I think that's the, if it's not 100%, and he does that, you know, look at this. Paul is he's putting it all out there. If this isn't real, then don't follow it. And that's the thing. People say, well, if, people, if somebody would come to you and say, you know, I just don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and I'm like, well, then I wouldn't follow him. I would, get, would you let me talk to you about maybe why you shouldn't believe that? But I wouldn't. That'd be stupid. Why would you follow somebody you can't trust? So you just tell the truth. You know, it's the old adage that, you know, we can tell somebody why we have the hope and you can say to them, you know, what I have told you I believe is true. Whether you believe it or not is up to you. But we're going to get into how that belief works a little bit, even though we won't argue about it too much today. So when we look at verses 4 and 5, we have this confidence we can have of eternal life. And we, we talked about a lot the first week because of what God did in Christ. So we can have our eternal inheritance. It talks about that. It's a very neat scriptures um, because we have our salvation guarded by him um, continually, which is really good. So we've got this analogy that grace is there, the doctor's willingness and ability. The gospel's there, the surgical, uh, life-giving surgical procedure. We need to actually undergo the surgery itself, and that's this new birth. How does this work, this new birth? Because this is hard for us sometimes. We're going to look at a couple different places. We looked at First Corinthians, but we're going to look at John 3 a little bit because that's the place that we have it uh, probably the most, this what I tend to call the Nick at Night passage. Uh, where Nicodemus comes at night and talks to Jesus. Uh, so, but we have this new birth. We have it here in, we have it here in, in First Peter, and it called us the hope of the new, uh, new life. This is a term called regeneration. Uh, so you think about that word a little bit. Generation, generate, genesis means beginning, right? Birth. Uh, all of you got generated, right? sometime in your life. Uh, it's always fun to ask a kid if they remember when they were born. You always get kind of a puzzled look, like, who invited this guy? Uh, but, uh, but there's a regeneration. That's what this talks about. You see this in Titus. God saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. But the idea first comes from Jesus. So if you, if, if you want to follow along in John 3, a lot of red letter stuff here, but you've got Nicodemus coming, kind of perspectful. I mean, you know, verse 2 says that we know you're a teacher from God, which is a nice concession from a Pharisee, because um, no one can do these miracles, these signs that you do unless God's with them. And Jesus answered, which is really interesting because it seems like we're talking about this, but, you know, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, and this is interesting. He cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3 is a good verse to remember. What's well, so those 4, 5, and 6? And 7, 8, and 9 are good too. Eh, 10 through 15 are good. 16 is really cool. Remember John 3, 16? Yeah. It's a good chapter for lots of reasons. Uh, it gives us this new birth. So you have this born againing. It, it's a weird word in Greek. It can also mean from above. And which one is it? And I'm like, Yes, <laughs> I think both. It, it's a new, but it's a above, where it comes from and what it is. And you get this, what, what happens happened in our culture probably about, I suppose in the 60s and 70s we had this. Born again became a kind of a 
idiom for a particular way to come to faith. Um, that's not the way it's presented in the Bible. Um, not that that way is bad. I mean, you can do it. There's a variety of ways, I suppose. Um, but we have to be, I mean, people, I got asked that. I remember as a young Christian in my 20s, it's like, are you a born-again Christian? And I wanted to say, like, well, is there any other kind? You know, it, it's like, what do you mean by that? You know, it's like, uh, you know, what, did you go forward and say a prayer and all that kind of stuff? It's like, well, you're kind of, I guess I don't. What difference does it make how I did it? <laughs> you know, it's like, that I did it is the key. Uh, and I think, again, that's one way. But what you see is Jesus and apostles, they teach that the understanding and experience of this is of prime importance. We see this throughout Scripture. So why? Well, we're just going to look briefly at three things we should know about this regeneration. Because I think we major in the minors here way, way too much. Because um, think about that verse. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born from above. We'll go with that. So how many can see the kingdom of God if they're not? Wouldn't that be zero? If everyone has to have it, no one who has it, you know, it makes sense. It's math. So it's necessary. It's not optional. You have to have this. Notice it's not about method. It's about whether it's real. And you, you get in verses 6 and 7, that which is born of flesh is flesh. You know, that which is, is born of a sinful nature sinful becomes uh, from sinful nature. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. He says it again if you didn't get it the first time. But it's born of the Spirit, now he's saying. So there's a, this is a equate, it comes from the outside. This is the thing we, we miss. We can't do this on our own. You know, I like Star Wars. It's, it's cool. You know, I like Yoda going like this and things go up and, you know, dancing around cool and Count Dooku. And, well, let's not get into that. But anyway, Star Wars is, is the opposite of this. And, you know, what do they do? You know, Luke is, you know, if you remember, I don't know if you like Star Wars, deal with it. Um, you can Google it. <laughs> he's, he's blindfolded and he's trying to hit this thing with this lightsaber and he's getting beat up pretty bad. And... Obi-Wan says, you know, you've got to search within yourself. That's kind of an Eastern way, an Eastern religion way, like, you know, Hindu, but, you know, luck within yourself. And what we did that with the kids are, God, man, if you luck within yourself, what do you find? Oops. <laughs> we got a problem. You find a problem. And if you're looking for the solution within yourself, this says you're not going to find it. It's the difference, main difference between, you know, Christianity and lots of other, it, it comes from the outside. It's grace. If, it, if you could do it yourself, it wouldn't be grace. It'd be works. You know, search within yourself. Search your feelings. And I'm like, yeah, I feel like this thing's hurting me. But take the blindfold off. But again, that's, it's different that way. So one must be born of the Spirit because we are by nature not spiritual. And we have this in Ephesians 2, that we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He's talking about Christians there. That's where we start. So something has to change in us to be able to desire to be saved, have that operation. First Corinthians 2 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And sometimes we take that and think you have to be some sort of theological guru. No, it's just, you know, I mean, each one of you to believe. Why do you believe? 
Is it because you're better than everybody else? Hope not. Um, what is it that changed in you? And, and it's really fun to talk to people about their faith because you get everybody has a different story. It's really cool, you know. When did you know? When did you realize? When did it make difference to you? Did it take a lot of time? Did it happen overnight? I mean, you just got all these different ways. I always like to use Peter and Paul. You know, Paul, Paul went pretty quick there, you know. He's on the way to Damascus, and he is knocked off his horse. And, and well, if there was a horse, let's go with the horse. But he gets this vision. You know, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? I mean, if you ask Paul, it's like, do you know when it kind of changed fell on the meter for you? He'd probably knock it down to a couple of days. Well, it was that time when I got spirit, physically blinded because of Jesus appearing to me. Well, that was, you know, that's pretty good. But then you think about somebody like Peter. If you ask Peter, who, author of the text, main text today, what do you think he would say? When, when did you have that spiritual renewal? Was when Andrew came to you after he saw Jesus with John the Baptist and said, I think we found the guy? Was it when you started following him and left your nets after the great catch of fish? Because he had some guilt there. You know, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. Maybe it was in Caesarea Philippi when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then right after that, Jesus talks about his death and Peter rebukes him. And maybe it wasn't yet, I don't know. <laughs> Well, it must have been when he said, I'll die for you in the upper room. But that didn't work out too well because just a few hours later, he's denying him. I don't know when Peter would say, you know, and I think that's okay. But if you ask Peter when he's writing this letter or whatever it was, maybe in the mid-60s, he could say, well, maybe I don't know exactly when, but I know I've got it now. And I think that's the key for all of you. It's like, do you have it now? I mean, I think it's great to think about in the past. There are some churches that will say, well, you've got to know the date. And then, then I have to leave. Uh, no. I mean, I can give you a time period, but I don't know exactly. And some people have it. Good. <laughs> Great. It's just, do you have it now? Do you, do you know, is it past the fact that you know there's a spiritual eternal surgeon and you know there's a perfect procedure and that you've actually undergone the surgery you know that's the key have you got there yet you know if you've got there then don't worry about so much what your date is i mean i don't know go down go home get on your knees pray to god and write down july 24th um i know that's a little flippant but do you know your savior is the main thing how you got to know him although important is not as important as other things romans 8 hits this too for the sinful nature is always hostile to god it never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. There's a problem. We're not by nature able to even do something has to happen. So we have to have this born-againing thing going on. The Spirit comes and, as it says, blows where it wills. So that's the first one. The other one we've already talked about, but we cannot regenerate ourselves. That just, that's just silly. Any more than you can do the old, your own heart surgery. Because I think, well, John, they put you under for that, don't they? Yeah. That's not a local. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 
<laughs> it's, it's done to you, right? Uh, you agree to it, but it's done to you. You don't earn it either. I mean, it's something that's got some grace to it. So we can't cause it. And look at the way it's put in First Peter. He caused us to be born anew. Who's the active agent there? It's not us. And, you know, just to help you here, because we say, you know, we're saved by grace through faith. That's Ephesians 6 and others. People say, well, I've got to do that work of faith. Well, you can call it that if you want, but don't think about that. Just think of the word earn. <laughs> if you have to have faith to receive the gift, does that mean you earned it? Think about a gift. I don't know, anybody's birthday soon, but if you get a birthday gift, if you just leave it in the package, it's not much good, is it? So if I open the package, did I earn the gift? I just received it. You know, and that's the same thing. The grace is the gift. That's something we can't earn. We just open it up. <laughs> so faith, you can, if you want to call it a work, I don't care what you call it, it's, it's not earned. That's the idea. Or grace wouldn't be grace, as Paul says. So he causes us to be born in it which is kind of cool. It comes from the outside. He offers to do the surgery. We simply accept the author in faith. John 1.13, they are reborn, people who follow Christ, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. This is over and over in the Scriptures. And then I mentioned this verse, verse 8 of our Nick at Night passage. The wind blows wherever it wants. The wind there is the Spirit. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. And you got to be sitting there thinking, because I certainly am, it's like, why the heck is he talking about this then? You can't understand exactly. I mean, there's parts of it we don't quite get, but we just get what we can, and that's what I'm trying to do today. The wind, it's kind of cool, because both in Hebrew and in Greek, the word for wind is the same word for spirit and for breath. It's a spit word in Hebrew. So luckily, well, we have, I'll stay over here so I don't spit on you. But it's ruach. It's almost Klingon. That's another that's Star Trek. Um, it ruach, you know, and you get it very early. In the beginning was God and the spirit was hovering over the waters. You know, ruach's already there. But ruach, the breath that's put into Adam to make him a living being is still Ruach. Makes him a soul, a living soul. And wind, too. So when you read this in, in Greek, it's pneumata, you know, spirit. You know, it's the idea of here you've got, you know, the pneumata blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the pneumata, but can't see where it comes from, such as people who are born by the pneumata. It's the same word. It's just translated different because it's obviously used in different contexts. So it's kind of cool. You, Jesus using, the, we get it a little bit in English, get it more in there, but who's in charge of how this works? It's God. Does that mean it's arbitrary? No. Just because I don't know what God is doing doesn't mean he hasn't had a plan. So how this exactly works behind the scenes has been debated for millennia, so we're going to land the plane here in three minutes. <laughs> Probably not. You've got Calvinism, which teaches that something has to happen before, and then you can seek. You've got Arminianism that says there's something, maybe a spark there that says maybe we can do this on our own, and then we go after it. You've got Molinism that says God all sees all the different kinds of things and, and, and puts things in motion so those who really want to be after him find him. And you know what? They all have their credence. And I think it's fun to 
to actually really fun to, to look at these. But we're kind of major in the minors there. So what's the practical key? This is not super hard, but we're going to use about six scriptures real quick. You know, you've got Jeremiah 29, 30. Now, this is to the exiles in Babylon. So in you, I'm sorry, but this is still tells us about how God works with people. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Really good thing to say to an exile. I'm still with you, even though you're not in Jerusalem anymore. Later you get in Amos, this is Israel, which is a northern kingdom. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and watery land where there is no water. Psalm 119, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandment. And then a couple of New Testament, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. But seek first the kingdom of God, which you can only see if you're born anew, we just read. <laughs> and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And Hebrews 11, and without faith is it impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards them who seek him. So what's the practical key? Seek God. That's kind of cool. So we just did it, folks, you know? Give yourself a hand. No, I'm just kidding. You got, I mean, we figured this out. That's really it. What am I, if you're sitting here thinking, well, I don't know Jesus that well, or maybe I wish I knew him more, seek him. You can sit there and think, well, is the Holy Spirit regenerating me, and then I do it, or do I kind of have a spark? And say, well, I don't know. You can think about that if you want, but just seek him. Go get the procedure. <laughs> get it done. That's the key. So finally, God regenerates through his word, not without it. That's how important this is. His word, Jesus, but his word, the Bible. In, in 1 Peter 1.12, this says, how was the gospel preached? It was preached through the Spirit. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by this Spirit sent from heaven. These things which angels long to look. So it's his word and the spirit coming together. So yeah, a lot of people, and I can see some of you in your stories, it came through reading the word because the spirit works through it. And most people who find the spirit that don't have the word get directed to the word. That's kind of a nice thing. So it's the spirit that carries the gospel and gives it regenerating power. And none of us can do that. I mean, this is a really good sermon, you got to admit, right? <laughs> No matter what we preach or teach, it doesn't change people's hearts. It's a mechanism that God uses, but only the Spirit will change your heart. So why do we do it? Well, He told us to make disciples. He told us to be obedient and preach the gospel in season and out of season. So obedience, but also He's chosen to use that as part of His regeneration. That's cool. But remember, our leader said some really good things, and they killed him. Not everybody's going to listen, but that doesn't mean we stop doing it. That's very key. So why does God cause new birth in the presence of the gospel? Why does he do that? Well, my guess is because the aim of the new birth is to create hope in the heart of sinners, assurance. And if there was no gospel, there would be no message in which to hope. It would be different for everybody. Well, 
the Bible keeps us focused and keeps the rails on and what we should believe. Back to First Peter, the hope through the resurrection, the living hope of the new birth coming in. So if someone asks you, this is kind of a, the end, you know, you can do what you want with this because this is just my opinion. Uh, I hope somewhat biblically informed, but if someone had asked if you've been born again, you can be snotty like me and say, is there any other kind? Uh, but that doesn't usually get you a lot. But you've been regenerated. You have new life. What are you going to say? Well, what are you going to say to yourself? How do I know I am? How can you know? Do you see the truth and the beauty of the gospel? Do you hear the voice of God in the gospel? Do you feel the need? Do you, do you know that you're guilty? Do you feel the need to repent and be forgiven? Are you hungry for God's word? Are you alive with hope in the promises of God? You know, these are ways to think about that. And you may say, you know, I don't know if I'm as hungry for the word as I want to be. Or maybe I'm not alive in the hope. Well, then pray for that. In fact, as we end, why don't we pray for that right now? Let's pray. Father, each one of us here, different places, different relationships with you. I'm sure some very deep, some just starting. But as we think about our lives before you, Give us what you want us to have. Give us the desire to know your word, the desire to want to follow your son, the desire to want to treat each other like we really have repented and are part of your family. Help each one of us grab onto the hope that we have and just thank you for changing our hearts so that we can know who you are. And if people are seeking here, perhaps help them know that the fact that they're seeking is something's going on, that you're working in their life and may they want to go to your word and get that life-giving word, eternal life, and the hope that only you can give. May we always try to focus on the most important things, and that's being part of your kingdom and having eternal life that starts when we believe. We thank you in Jesus' name.